Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler, and I'm thankful for everybody that's able to join us today. Um, if you're coming in on the Zoom app, then uh, you can submit any questions that you might have to us uh, in the Q&A box or the chat window. We'll be monitoring that in our discussion today. Um, or if you're coming in on Scott's Facebook page, um, we're over on live on Scott Smelser's Facebook page right now. And uh, you can put your questions, or your comments in his uh, comment box in that, in that video, and we'll be monitoring those as well. Um, so we want to encourage everyone, if you have any questions or thoughts or, or comments on what we're discussing today, Today, uh, we'd love to hear from the audience on any of those uh, types of questions, or if you have some other questions that you'd like us to discuss uh, or, or different directions you'd like us to go in, we'd be happy to field those questions as well. Or after the show, you can submit those to BibleQuest.org, and we'll get to those in future shows as well. Um, I've got with me Scott Smelser. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing well. Good, good. Uh, so where are we going this uh, afternoon, Scott? What are we talking about? So we're talking about one of your favorite characters, Nehemiah. And I'm going to put up some historical background information in just a minute. But first, why don't you, in a nutshell, uh, describe to us why Nehemiah is one of your favorite characters? Uh, yeah, so Nehemiah... Um, I think is maybe a little bit of an underknown character in the Bible. That might be um, kind of why uh, I really appreciate him and, and like him a lot. Um, his, his story, I think, um, whenever you talk about the background of Nehemiah and the time period that he lives in and the things that he did, it seems very, um, at least for me, unrelatable at first. But as you read and kind of see the details that happen in Nehemiah's life and the different challenges that he has to face and how he overcomes them, he's just a really great example. And I think a, a pretty relatable person uh, in some ways to learn how to better be a servant of the Lord, how to better be a leader. Um, there's just a, a lot of valuable lessons, I think, to learn from Nehemiah. All right. So uh, we're going to establish a little bit of historical background for Nehemiah. And so let's begin here with just a timeline. The Old Testament, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman. They rebelled. Uh, they're cast out of the garden. Sin gets worse, leads to the flood. Uh, the people try to stay together. God spreads them out promises are made to Abraham, the land nation, blessings to all nations, and then, of course, his descendants. Uh, they end up being, of course, enslaved in Egypt. Moses brings them out. They're given the law and the tabernacle. Eventually, they make it into the land. You have judges. Last judge, Samuel. They're given kings. You have the United Kingdom, divided kingdom, and this is where we're starting to get closer. Uh, Judah was taken captive by Babylon, and hauled away. And then it, after Cyrus's decree, they are able to go back. And Cyrus was not a Babylonian, but a Persian. All right. And so Babylon has fallen. The Persians are now the big dogs on the block. Zerubbabel comes back and uh, they will eventually get the temple um, rebuilt. Ezra will uh, reinstate a familiarity with the wall and Nehemiah with the law, excuse me. Both of those are happening around the same time. So yeah. <laughs> I just got dyslexic on myself there. And then Nehemiah with the rebuilding of the wall. Any comments here, Jonathan, on where it fits into the timeline before we go farther? Mm, nope. 
All right. That's good. That's so good. let's notice this about the empires before we proceed. Uh, Israel had been taken captive by Assyria, and they kind of had a dispersion policy. Now, this may be oversimplified, but uh, there's some basic realities here. And so if you've ever watched the street guys that do the shell game, that's a little bit what the Assyrians did with people. Mm -hmm. We conquer you, we put you over there. We conquer you, we put you over there. We conquer you, we put you over there. Um, Babylonian policy, they took you captive. We're taking you captive to Babylon. And that's where you uh, spent your time. The Persian Empire repatriated people. Go back. And not only were the Israelites allowed to go back to their homes, we know from archaeology, they did that for other captive nations as well. Mm -hmm. Go back back to your homes uh and it was really a better policy now they were going to get their taxes and um uh these weren't oh, what's the word i'm looking for sovereign yeah. sovereign kingdoms but they were allowed to have a certain amount of freedom and assistance and the persians would take the taxes yeah. right so zerubbabel and his people that's well before Nehemiah. Nehemiah is still back here in the Persian Empire, which was really big. And he's over here, but he gets news about Jerusalem. And, uh, and he's going to travel there. So I'm going to just put some chapter headings up here, Jonathan, and maybe you say a word or two about them. Mm -hmm. So chapter one, the report from Jerusalem, just kind of describe to us what's going on there. Yeah, so we already established Nehemiah is kind of in the time period of the Persian Empire, um, and he's actually living in Persia and working for the king as one of the cupbearers of the king, and he gets this report um, from one of his brothers, who I think his name's Hananiah, um, who comes in and Nehemiah asks, you know, how are things going in Jerusalem, because some of the Israelites have already started to go back to Jerusalem, and Hananiah gives this really terrible report. Um, that the wall is in ruins, the people are, are a laughing stock, they're a derision, God is being mocked, all, all of that kind of stuff. And Nehemiah, you know, he, he prays and mourns um, for what's going on um, in, in uh, Israel and uh, in Jerusalem at that time period. So, so setting the stage for Nehemiah, he very quickly, as soon as we get into his book, we see the problem. <laughs> um, there's, there's issues and work that needs to be done in Jerusalem, and Nehemiah is made aware of that. Yeah, and... The, um, the time period is significant. This is not like right after the others had gone back. They had gone back earlier, a different, different generation, but not everybody had gone back. And Nehemiah is one of the ones that hasn't. They've gotten the temple built, but the walls are still just like they were. You know, I went to Dresden when I lived in East Europe. Dresden was a city that got firebombed during World War II and it was in Eastern Germany and parts of Dresden were still in rubble, you know, from, from before uh, other parts had been rebuilt, but Nehemiah is determined. All right, so chapter two, Jonathan, describe this briefly for us, please. Yeah, so in chapter two, he takes this step a little bit further and you start to see um, a little bit of Nehemiah's character beyond everyone else, uh, where, you know, everyone's kind of aware of the situation that's going on in Jerusalem, but Nehemiah steps up to 
help solve that problem and that issue. And so he requests from the king um, if he can go and and rebuild the wall and kind of help the people in Jerusalem as well. And he uh, finds favor in the king's sight and he sends him with kind of supplies and, and Nehemiah goes and scouts out the damage. Um, and that's really kind of most of chapter two. He's scouting out and seeing how bad really is it. And he gathers some of the leaders of the Jewish people together and talks to them very briefly. But but work doesn't really start until uh, around chapter four, um, which we'll get to there. But he's just kind of going on a scouting mission to, to assess the damage and kind of plan out what's our next move. What are we going to do? And the king of Persia was very favorable uh, towards yeah. Nehemiah. He, mm -hmm. He'd seen, you know, what, what's troubling you, Nehemiah? And uh, he told him, and, and he, he gives him access to the king's force and stuff to get, get what he needs and, and everything. All right, chapter three, how about some that for us? Yeah, chapter three is maybe one of the more difficult chapters um, in the opening chapters of Nehemiah. It's a lot of names. Um, and I think tend to, we tend to, whenever we read in chapters like that, tend to skip over chapters that are like that because the names are kind of hard to, to pronounce sometimes and, and uh, really see the point. But one interesting thing that I will point out in chapter three is it introduces all of the people that are recruited to the work of rebuilding the wall. And it mentions what some of their backgrounds are. So you've got people that are like priests and perfumers and yeah. different, different people that are like that. Just your average people that are being gathered together. And I think the lesson to see there is uh, you don't have to be a professional, you know, wall builder <laughs> to build a wall. Um, and you don't have to be a professional, you know, whatever to work for the Lord and do the Lord's work. And that's something that you see Nehemiah is really good at, at stirring the people up and getting them together, no matter what their background is, to come and work together. Yeah, we're going to look in a minute at, at the size of the wall and, and what's going on. And it is remarkable. It, it would not have got done as quickly if they had just relied on, okay, we need construction crew guys, you know, uh, of like the perfumers, all sorts of people pitched in. And there's one guy, if I remember correctly, uh, who had either totally or predominantly daughters. And so he yep. and his daughters, you know, yep. are working on one section wall. Yep. All right. Uh, and then chapter four. Yeah, so chapter four, they're working on the wall, they begin that work, um, and they start to face their really first big serious opposition. Um, so we're introduced to the, uh, well, really for the second time they show up, but but they primarily start taking a role in the story in chapter four of the adversaries, the enemies, um, who will be called Sanballat and Tobiah. And we'll spend some time talking about them in more detail when we get to chapter six. Um, but they come and start taunting the people of Israel, um, you know, threatening to attack and slow down the work. And you see Nehemiah's character as a leader really stand up and motivate the people to continue to work regardless of the opposition. And I really like this is maybe one of the more well-known verses in Nehemiah, but Nehemiah chapter four in verse six um, says, so we built the wall and all of the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Um, and so Nehemiah helps stir that mind and that effort to continue to work regardless of the opposition that's coming. And um, the, the opposition that included just like mockery, will they finish up in a day? Will they receive the stones out of the rubbish, burned ones at that? Uh, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And then there's further uh, planned violence uh, against them. And so they're, they're armed while they're also building, et cetera, et cetera. 
right, chapter five, some internal problems, kind of mm -hmm. what's going on in Nehemiah five. Yeah, so um, Nehemiah st turns to some of the mistreatment and some of the, the hypocrisy and different things that are going on in Israel themselves. And so kind of, you know, oppressing um, the poor uh, and, and identifying that problem. So in verse six, uh, it says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry of these words and I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I heard a great assembly, I had a great, held a great assembly against them and said, we are as far as we are able have brought you back to our Jewish brothers who have sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. And so there's just all kinds of injustice and mistreatment that's going on, not only from Sambal and Tobiah but, and, and other enemies, but internally within within their own Jewish people and, and them own, their own selves. And apparently, you know, they're selling each other um, as slaves or things like that. So Nehemiah steps up and and writes those wrongs and gets them to start, um, you know, treating each other fairly and 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 as they should have from the beginning. And we're about to get into chapter six. But first, I'm just going to mention some things about seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven that we're not going to be getting into today. Uh, in chapter seven, after the wall had been built, uh, then chapter seven, verse five, my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and officials, the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Now I found the genealogy of those who came up at the first. So this was, you know, uh, decades and decades and decades before. And he found the genealogy and the records of those. And we have some information about that, about when Ezra read them the law. And then we get back to Nehemiah's current time and some information up there. But uh, we're going to be focusing in here on chapter six, where they get the wall built. And uh, how many days did it take to get the wall built? It took them 52 days. All right, 52 days. I want to jump in, and uh, we'll, there's some more stuff in chapter six as well. But before doing that, I want to look at some pictures here. So these are from Lean Ritmeyer, um, paid to have use of these. Uh, Lean Ritmeyer does incredible work. He's uh, kind of an archeologist artist. Um, mm -hmm. He's the one that made the fantastic replica of the of Herod's temple. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's in England, he has great stuff. I would recommend his stuff. And so this is kind of an image of the city. They're not the, the older city. You can see where the wall had previously been. Yep. Okay, so over here is like let's identify some areas here. Hinnom Valley, and if you think of some New Testament maps of Jerusalem, you'll know that Jerusalem is a lot bigger city than this right here. So this mm -hmm. is um, maybe what we'd call like down here the old city. Yep. But the Hinnom Valley's over there. The Kedron Valley is over there. Pool of Siloam. Uh, Valley Gate and the towers uh, up here, and here's the Western Hill. Mm -hmm. So they don't rebuild all of this wall, but, and here's this heap of stones over here uh, that'll be referred to in the book. There's the Temple Mount. Here are some of the uh, places that you can read about uh, when you're reading in Nehemiah. The Tower of Haniel, the Fish Gate, the Old Gate, Tower of Ovens, Valley Gate, Fountain Gate, uh, Fountain Gate, Projecting Tower, Horse Gate, Muster Gate. I don't remember if these are both named that or if there is some confusion as to which is which. 
Um, and so uh, here you have, well, okay, this is called here in this map, excuse me, the old uh, city. Oh, I guess the old city walls of today. Yep. All right. And then, but this is a section redone by Nehemiah. Uh, and with that, and so there's Jerusalem in the time of Nehemiah. With that, Jonathan, how about get us into uh, Nehemiah chapter six? Yeah, so I'll just read, starting out Nehemiah chapter six, the first four verses. <clears throat> it says, now when Sambawa and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, was again, was uh, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set up doors in the gates. Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakarephorim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should you stop? Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So we'll just stop right there and make some some kind of points through the the text. Um, you learn a lot about Nehemiah in this section in this chapter. You learn a lot about the enemies of God's people in this chapter, and you learn a lot about God's people um, and and through the responses and the tactics and different strategies and things that they have. So I want to just notice uh, a couple of things about the enemies. They're they're mentioned here again: Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And what they do, um, it, it mentions in verse one, how much of the work had been completed in Nehemiah six, verse one. Um, so it, he says that they'd heard that they built up the wall and there was no breach left in it, but there's still one thing that's not finished yet. Nehemiah hasn't put doors in the gates. So if I was going to put like maybe a percentage on the completion of the wall so far in Nehemiah 6 verse 1, I might say it's maybe like 97, 98% finished. He's just got to put the doors in and then we're done. Um, so they're, they're almost totally done with this work here. But the enemies don't care how far along the work is. Um, and, and how much work is done, they're still going to come and be opposed and, and, and be in opposition to Nehemiah and the people. And I think that shows uh, a little bit, and, and you can see this uh, uh, elsewhere in scripture, how the enemies of God operate here is the same way that our enemy operates still today. Um, Satan doesn't really have any honor in his strategies or tactics or, or you know, how much work you've done or how little work that you've done. Um, really, you know, from the very beginning, Satan is attacking us and it doesn't matter how short or long we've been serving the Lord, he's attacking. Um, and he's not discouraged, even if we're 95% or 98% of the way done with our race. Um, you know, his attacks don't let up and the, the attacks of Sambout and Tobiah, they've been attacking all the way since chapter two in Nehemiah. We didn't have time to read that, but all along the way at the very beginning, before any work starts, they're attacking, um, in the middle. When they're halfway finished in chapter four, they're attacking. And when there's 98% of the work done, they're attacking. Um, it, it, they're, they're not, you know, going to take a break just because they see the momentum of God's people continuing to move forward. Go ahead, Scott. We've got a question, and it's on a different topic. Yeah. So I want to go ahead and mention it so we'll be ready and, and leave time for it toward the latter part of the program. Uh, but right now, while we're on Nehemiah, we'll, we'll stick with that a little bit longer. Here's a very interesting question that we'll deal with in a little bit. Did Elijah die? Uh, and it says he certainly did not die in the same sense as most people, but the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Does that mean Elijah did not sin? 
So we're going to address that in the latter part of the program. Thanks for the question. And we'll be coming back to that after we pin up some more material on Nehemiah. Uh, and let's get our text up here on the screen. Yep. What verse are we to? Uh, through verse four. Yeah, so one through four is what we're on right now. All right. So then in verse five, in the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to meet with an open letter in sync. And it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Gershom also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to the reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jew Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. Well, now, come, let us take counsel together. And what's Nehemiah's answer? Yeah, he says, uh, no. Um, so uh, he sent to them saying, no such things that you have said have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind for they all wanted to frighten us thinking that their hands will drop from the work and uh, it will uh, not be done. But now oh God strengthened my hands. So you see through these first few verses, a couple of strategies that the enemies of God or the enemies of Nehemiah have to try to stop and stall the work. Um, one of the first things that they try to do is seemingly kind of distract Nehemiah from the work. So, um, you know, Nehemiah is aware that, you know, they have ulterior motives and trying to get him to come out into that valley and meet with them. Um, but they're sending him letters and, and kind of giving the facade of like, hey, you know, why don't you come and just like, let's just discuss this um, together. And Nehemiah's response four times is no. <laughs> Um, you know, I've got important work here to do. Um, and, and, you know, he's basically saying what I'm doing is too important for me to be distracted. Um, and uh, it, uh, again, what I see throughout the story of Nehemiah are, are helpful principles for us as well. One of the tactics that, you know, our enemy that Satan uses to stop us from the work that we're supposed to be doing for the Lord is distraction. Um, and, you uh, we can very easily be distracted. Maybe one of the more impressive things about Nehemiah's example is that he endured through multiple temptations of being distracted. It wasn't just like one letter and he said no. And then, you know, they, they stopped, but you know, second letter and a third letter and a fourth letter. And so they finally ramp it up starting in uh, verse five with um, maybe a different kind of tactic that they use. But um, it, it's so easy for us to be distracted by small things um, and you don't see Nehemiah, he stands up to those distractions and keeps his focus on the work at hand. And what's the leverage of distraction in verse seven? Yeah, so they send this, this letter, um, it's kind of this open letter um, that is sending out all these false accusations um, and really trying to drive fear into Nehemiah uh, and, and the people. Drive fear. What's that? Why would it cause, why, why is it designed to cause fear? What's the leverage? Uh, well, they're uh, saying that Nehemiah is claiming that he uh, is the king and that, um, you know, they're rebelling and, you know, they might, the Persians might come and destroy them. Yeah. So uh, we, we talked earlier about the different policies and the Persians were fine and supported Nehemiah coming over there. But it wasn't for him to become king and stop paying the taxes, Persian, those type of things. And so this is like, uh, you know, they're making up things and then we're going to tell on you with, with, with lies that aren't even true. And of course, that, and the effort is to get Nehemiah to come out. What mm -hmm. New Testament event does this remind you of 
where somebody's trying to get somebody in a different place. Um, Remember Paul, after the third missionary journey, the, uh, the Jews are really wanting him. They've got a, they've had men if early on in the conspiracy, there were 40 men agreeing not to eat or drink till he was dead. And they're, they're wanting him to be brought back to Jerusalem and by, by controlling where he's at, they want to be able to attack him and, and, and do him in. Uh, and of course, Paul appeals to the Roman authorities, etc. Mm -hmm. And Nehemiah, he, he doesn't let it distract him. And he just says, you know, basically, you're lying, you know it, and I know it, and he keeps working. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating. There, there are two different ways that we'll see in this next section we're going to read too that Sambelt and Tobiah are trying to use fear to motivate Nehemiah um, or to, I guess, dismotivate Nehemiah. The first is to kind of uh, scare him into not doing what he should be doing. So like in verse nine, it says they wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work. Um, and that's one way that that fear works, this discouraging fear that keeps us from doing what we ought to do. Uh, and that kind of fear can be very destructive. Um, and, you know, the, the reason why we don't do what we are supposed to do is often from cowardice um, and, and, you know, different things that like maybe rejection uh, or, or potential punishment or something like that. Um, and what you see in Nehemiah is there are certainly some fears that we need to face and we need to, you know, I guess, investigate. Um, but what I think you also learn from Nehemiah is that there are some fears that we just need to get over and move on from. And that's what Nehemiah does here. You know, uh, it, they're trying to scare him. Um, but he doesn't obsess over that. You see his courage uh, and relying on the Lord at the end of verse nine. But, you know, all of their accusations and their, their empty threats that they're making, Nehemiah just says, that's not true. And I'm going to keep working. <laughs> um, he doesn't get into this debate or try to defend his honor or whatever like that. He doesn't let fear paralyze him into not doing what he knows he needs to be doing for the Lord. Um, and there's a second type of fear that shows up, but we'll mention that in the next section. Our current cancel culture is kind of a little bit of the same thing. It's to instill fear in people, to discourage people and, and get them to go along with things they shouldn't go along and not to speak out against things that are evil. So mm -hmm. lesson there. All right, next point. Yeah, so in verse 10, um, there's this next kind of episode that begins where it says, Now I went into the house of Shimeiah, the son of Deliah, son of uh, Methabul, who was confined to his home. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had, been, he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way of sin. And so that he, uh, they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So there's the same strategy, get Nehemiah to be afraid, use fear as this, you know, motivation to stop Nehemiah, but it's not this time to stop Nehemiah from doing what he's supposed to be doing or to distract him or discourage him from the work. Instead, this fear is trying to cause him to do something that he shouldn't. 
Uh, and so it says in um, verse 13, the purpose uh, was so that I should be afraid and act in this way of sin. Um, so this is really interesting. The, the scene is set up where there's this Jewish guy um, that comes to Nehemiah, who's we find out is hired by Sambal and Tobiah. And he tells him, Nehemiah, you know, come into the temple, come into the house of God. We're going to close the doors because they're coming to kill you in the middle of the night. You know, they're, they're going to try to, you know, ambush you or something like that. You need to come in, lock yourself in, kind of use this as a fortress to protect yourself. Um, and Nehemiah says, no, he's not going to do that. Um, why is that such a big deal? Why does Nehemiah not want to do that? Sorry, I was looking at, at a text in Acts. In oh, Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. So like, Nehemiah, his response shows um, that, you know, he's not supposed to be going into there. That would be a sin. Um, you weren't just supposed to go into the temple and no person, no ordinary person could just go into the temple. You had to be a priest and, and follow the, the laws of purification and that sort of thing. But to take that a step further, this guy is encouraging Nehemiah to almost kind of set up the temple of God as like his own personal fortress. And, you know, kind of like imagine what would happen if Nehemiah did that. It would take away from all of his credibility. Uh, it would take away from his integrity and his words of encouragement and all the things that he's been saying to the people of Israel so far in this story. And so what his response shows is that there are more important things to him than his personal security or safety. Um, and typically fear tries to motivate us to prioritize safety and security over our service to the Lord. Um, and you know, think about just a couple of examples um, relating to like fear making us do things that are sinful. Um, you know, think about lying. What's the reason why people lie most commonly? Because they're, they're afraid. Or get an advantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either to get an advantage or because they're afraid of like some kind of scrutiny or something like that. So they're trying to cover up. Um, it, it's this uh, in similar kind of language with Nehemiah lies and deceit are kind of this unlawful sanctuary that we try to hide in um and nehemiah isn't interested in using the lord's sanctuary for that um so he stands up to that fear both the fear of discouragement in the first section and also the fear of encouragement to do wrong and sin um and and uh yeah so that's through um verse uh, 13 or verse 14 you got any comments or thoughts on that scott nope Let's take a look at verse 15. Yeah, so verse 15 says, So the wall was finished uh, on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all of the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he, had, he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, the son of Era, the son of Jeconiah, the son, uh, who had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, his wife. And so also they spoke to, uh, of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to me to make me afraid. Um, so we already alluded to verse 15 and 16. Before we, before we talk about those verses, because I think those are really important and cool. Um, in verse 17 and following, you see there are more attacks. Um, Tobiah is sort of infiltrating 
into the the nobles of Jerusalem. He's intermarried with them and kind of has some some pool and um, uh, a little bit of influence going on uh, in there. Um, and he's sending, you know, all these frightening letters, even more letters to make Nehemiah afraid. And we don't have recorded what those letters said, but he's continuing to kind of persist in his opposition to Nehemiah. And in the midst of all of that, and we skipped over a lot of the first few chapters of Nehemiah, but in the midst of, of this chapter where the enemies of God's people are ever present and they're ever active and trying to discourage and stop the work. And, you know, they're always attempting to ruin God's work and the work of God's people in that kind of environment. It's interesting to see what's accomplished <laughs> um, because you see, you see all of this opposition and fighting, but in verse 15 and 16, what, what's accomplished in that environment? They rebuild the city walls in 52 days, 52 mm -hmm. days. Um, I've been, uh, on the road to Harrisburg, there's been a section of road that's been blocked off for months because they were working on a bridge for months. And we're talking people that have power equipment and, and, and all this type of things. Um, what people used to accomplish, it, it's, it's incredible. And, and in this particular case, of course, they had a mind to work. God was with them. You know, all sorts of people pitched in and they would not be deterred. Yep. And 52 days built today, you wouldn't be able to get the permits. Yeah. 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 I really love this story because it, it shows, I think, a really important principle that in an environment where God's enemies are trying their absolute hardest. And also God's people are trying their absolute hardest. God's people win every single time. Um, and, and it's because they have God on their side. Um, and, you know, you would assume that this level of, of success, um, like if you didn't read the rest of the story and you just had, you know, Nehemiah 6 verse 15, that they finished the wall in 52 days. And that was the only piece of information you had in the story. You'd assume that they had, you know, ideal circumstances and that the people that were working on it were professionals. And we already touched on that. Their circumstances were not ideal. There was a lot of opposition and it was really difficult. You can read in chapter four about some of the difficulties and like lack of sleep and, and doubling up on the work and different things that they had to do. And the people that were involved, they weren't experts. They were just people. Um, and, and, you know, I think if, if God's people today continue to want to wait for ideal circumstances or wait for more qualified people to come along and do God's work, we'll be waiting for a really long time or maybe even forever. Um, right. and so Nehemiah really steps up and, and shows a great example of, you know, you don't have to be someone special. You don't have to have ideal circumstances to accomplish great things for the Lord. Um, and even in the midst of opposition, those great things can happen. Um, because God's people will win every single time. Yeah, and generations have passed since the first return, and these walls, the city walls, have been in disrepair. Yeah. And and Nehemiah takes the initiative, mm -hmm. uh, and he he motivates the people, and the people have a mind to work. It's really amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to get to that question about Elijah? Let's do. Yeah. All right. So let's get the question back up here. Did Elijah die? 
Uh, he certainly did not die in the same sense as most people. And Jonathan, if you want to be pulling up the biblical text that shows where he didn't die, and I'll continue the question. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So that's in Romans chapter 6. We'll take a look in that in a minute. Does this mean that Elijah did not sin? So first off, let's look at what happens with Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet, who will be followed by Elisha. Mm -hmm. And Elisha is able to go over with him. And then what happens to Elijah? Yeah, so this is in 2 Kings chapter 2. Um, and I don't have that to, to bring up on the screen, but um, the whole chapter will summarize a little bit of it and I'll read some of it. Um, Elijah and his the new prophet that's going to be replacing him, Elisha, go across the Jordan River um, and to a place by themselves. Um, and uh, Elisha goes with him and he asks for a favor that he would be given a double portion of his spirit. Uh, and Elijah, you know, uh, says that that's not for me to give. And in verse 11 of Second Kings chapter two, as they still went and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan. Um, and then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, the water parted on one side to the other and Elisha went over. Um, and it goes on to tell a little bit more of a story of people going to look for the body of Elijah and they can't find the body of Elijah. So he's taken up into heaven. He doesn't physically die. Similar picture of maybe like Jesus. He doesn't physically die. So then the question says, did Elijah die? And the answer physically, no, he didn't. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Mm -hmm. Does this mean that Elijah did not sin? No, I don't believe it does. Let's take a look here at this phrase. The wages of sin is death. First off, before we go into this text, let's notice that there are two types of death repeatedly talked about in the Bible. Now, sometimes they are interrelated, and a, and a verse may refer to both of them. But let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, and Adam is told, if you eat of the fruit of the garden in the day that you eat it, you will what? You'll surely die. Die. Adam ate the fruit and died 900-something years later, if I remember the, the numbers correctly. Uh, he didn't die physically that day, but he and Eve were kicked out of the garden where they had enjoyed this close fellowship with God. So we have physical death, we have spiritual death. Phys and both are described in the Bible as separations. So in James chapter two, uh, what's the separation at physical death? The body apart from the- Spirit is dead. Spirit is, is death. Um, and then spiritual death, is our spirit separated from God. So for example, Ephesians chapter two, verse one, it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ. It's not talking about physical death. That's talking about spiritual death. And let's work our way backwards here in Romans six. The wages of sin is death, 
the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before this, it said, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit were you getting at at that time from the things that you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. So then he says, but now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, what's going to physically happen to Paul anyway? Is he going to die? Yeah. What's going to physically happen to a number of the saints in Jerusalem when Nero uh, looks for a scapegoat after Rome burned? They're going to be killed. Yeah. Um, these people are going to die physically, but there's something else going on here. So let's go back up to 6-1, dead to sin, alive to God. Paul has been talking about grace, and he says, now, should then we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. And then sum up for us the next few verses there, please, Jonathan. Yeah, so he gives a couple of reasons of why that's not, because we have died to sin. We've been buried with Christ in baptism, and in that burial, we have repented, put off the old self, and have rose as new new creatures and newness of life, and so we can't continue living in sin if we've died to it. Yeah, so there's the spiritual death of sin and being in bondage to it, and then we are to be dead to sin and baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. So there's various deaths here. There's the death of Jesus. There's our death to sin. There's the death we continue in sin. We're buried with him, therefore, with him by baptism into death, that in order that like his Christ was raised from the dead, physically, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we become united in a death like his, we'll be united in a resurrection like his. And here's this repentant death here. Uh, read verse six for us, please, Jonathan, six and seven. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over it. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives to God. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Don't let sin, you know, control your mortal body. And then uh, here's the two choices. Go over these two choices for us, please, Jonathan, in 15 and 16. Yeah, so he says, are we to sin uh, because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So it's interesting that he says you have a choice, um, not in a choice of if you're going to be free or not, but who are you going to be a slave to? Uh, you're either going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to obedience. And this death is not a death we want. We want to be dead to sin. We want to crucify the old man, Luke 9, 23. Uh, Jesus said, anybody would come after me, deny self, take up your cross and follow me. Crucify that old man. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. That's a death we want. This is not a death we want. Uh, your slaves are the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death. And the book of Revelation calls this death 
numerically what? The second, second death. death. Mm -hmm. uh, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you committed. Having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. So you're going to serve something, one or the other. Which one do you want to serve? And that, when you were slaves of sin, hey, yeah, you were free in regard to righteousness. You don't have to do those acts of righteousness, but you're a slave of sin. And if you want to be free from sin, you need to be that slave and servant of righteousness. So it ends with the wages of sin is death. Free gift of God is eternal life. So now let's go back and think about that question. Um, does this mean Elijah did not sin? Uh, what's Romans 3.23 say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is everybody going to die physically? No. First Corinthians chapter 15. Mm -hmm. Paul points out, we will not all die, sleep, die physically. Because some people will be left alive at the coming of Christ. And so let's turn and read that passage. First Corinthians chapter 15. And Jonathan, how about start us right around verse 51. First Corinthians 15. Uh, so he says, this is First Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you this mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality and similarly in first thessalonians chapter 4 verse 11 um don't worry about those that are falling asleep we're not going to go up before them in fact when the lord comes the dead in Christ will rise first, then we that are left alive will be caught up. Well, that's kind of like what happened to Elijah. Yeah. He was caught up and didn't die. And that's what the Bible says is going to happen to a lot of Christians at the last day. Does that mean that if, if we live to the ascension, that obviously doesn't mean we didn't sin. Uh, and so the wages of sin is death, as I believe, spiritual death. Uh, one last way of thinking about it is this. Um, are children sometimes stillborn? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, do children sometimes die at the age of a, a few weeks or days or months or hours? Yep. Yep. Yes. And Jesus said about little children, unto such belongeth the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. They weren't, Paul said in Romans 7, I was alive once. Uh, little children, Deuteronomy 139, that don't understand the difference between good and evil. Um, so they can die physically, but that's not because they sinned. Mm -hmm. uh, sin is part of life, and the curses, including sickness and death, are part of life, but it's, it's not a direct correlation there. Mm -hmm. um, but physical death can happen to people that didn't sin. And people that did sin may escape physical death. Yeah. The Lord comes, or as in the case of Elijah, where he's taken up. Sure. Good question. Thank you for yeah. asking that. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
All right. Well, that is um, that is our time for this afternoon. So uh, thank you for that question. Um, thank you to our audience for joining us today. And thanks, Scott, for that discussion in Nehemiah and also on Elijah. Um, again, to our audience, if you have any more questions, uh, maybe something else you'd like clarified on Nehemiah or, or Elijah or any other Bible question that you have, you can submit those to us at BibleQuest.tv, and we'll be happy to discuss those on our future shows. But that's all we have for this week. So we'll see you all next Tuesday, Lord willing.